Thank you, Pastor Norbert. It's, uh, it's really, it, it, for me, it's just an incredible joy and, and privilege to work alongside of pastors like Pastor Norb and so many uh, that you know, of course, in your community of faith here at TCC and around the Alberta Baptist Association. It is uh, a rich community that is uh, that is we believe we can do so much more together than we can do uh, apart as individual congregations. So I considered a real great joy to be uh, celebrating Jesus with you here today uh, at TCC and a great privilege to be able to open up the word of God, which we are looking at at a particular portion of scripture from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 today. It's a very familiar passage in the life and ministries of Jesus. And I'd like to open up that passage with a dramatic interpretation of that scripture for you. As we read that Simon of Bethany greeted the stranger at the entrance of his palatial home, The rings on his fingers glittered in the midday sun. Simon's greeting was purposely reserved as he motioned the stranger to come inside. He kept his eyes diverted from the large brass basin at the door. Normally, he would have called his servant to wash a guest's feet, but he wasn't sure that it was appropriate for him, a leader of some stature, to honor a stranger in that way. He really knew nothing of this man. The stranger carried a mediocre, albeit growing, reputation, and Simon was actually more curious than anything. He wanted to assess the stranger, but it had to be on his own terms. He did not want to be seen as endorsing the stranger. He certainly did not want to give anyone the wrong impression. Still, as they walked Past that empty basin, Simon could not help but feel a little uncomfortable. Thankfully, the stranger didn't appear to notice anything out of the ordinary, and soon they were seated together at the table. Simon surveyed the meal with a sense of satisfaction. Each dish, meticulously prepared, spoke again of his status. It pleased him greatly, and he wondered if the Stranger felt a bit in awe of these lavish conditions. An awkward silence fell between the two of them as they began eating. Simon started to wonder why he had invited the stranger at all, because the stranger seemed unimpressed, almost oblivious to the privilege and the potential of being in such a place of influence. Then some relief. The awkwardness was broken by the sound of shuffling feet behind them. Simon assumed it to be an overzealous servant bringing the next course before they finished eating the first. Without turning to acknowledge the servant, Simon raised his hand as a sign to stop. Perplexed when the shuffling noise continued, Simon turned in disbelief to see a woman who had no place in his home. Loathing convulsed Simon as he recognized this woman. He had seen her 
many times before, waiting outside the West Gate, vying for customers. This prostitute was in his house. How did she get in? What did she want? Before Simon could decide to how to deal with the situation, the woman stopped by the feet of the stranger. As she fell on to her face, she drew an alabaster flask from beneath her tunic. Placing the flask beside his feet, she looked straight into the stranger's eyes. The apprehension etched upon her once beautiful face was met with compassion on his. She buried her head in her hands and cried uncontrollably. Simon immediately beckoned for a servant. This is outrageous, he thought. This is a private engagement in a respectable, godly home. And this this woman, this prostitute, is turning it into a circus. Simon beckoned again, his irritation deepening. He glanced at his guest. How embarrassed the stranger must feel, but when Simon looked again more closely at his face, he was puzzled. He didn't know how to interpret the stranger's expression. The woman loosened the stopper at the flask of the flask and began pouring its contents over the stranger's feet. Tears and oil mingled as they massaged his feet. Normally, her action would have appeared sensuous, but somehow it seemed more like an act of worship. The woman reached up and unfastened her hair clasp. Her long black hair tumbled free. She lowered her head and began wiping the oil and tears from the stranger's feet with her hair. Now Simon was furious. First, this woman had the gall to enter his home uninvited. Second, the stranger was undoubtedly a fraud. He, Simon, had been deceived into entertaining a fraud, a man with any spiritual discernment, not to mention one paraded around as the Messiah, would know that this was a prostitute who was groveling at his feet. Simon was still scowling when the stranger turned to him. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time she entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins... Many that they be have been forgiven, for she has loved much. Simon seethed with anger and embarrassment. This guest was clearly inferring that this woman had shown more hospitality than he had. It was an outrage, an insult. He was in his own home, and the stranger was making him feel like a sinner. A little tense, wouldn't you say? As we observe Jesus today in this 
portion of Scripture, we find him caught up in the drama that I said is recorded in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And we see him, Jesus, under pressure, pushed into a corner, expected to deal with the unexpected when in the middle of a highly conservative, politically sensitive dinner party, he is forced to deal with a sinner. In Luke chapter 7, verse 37, we're introduced to a woman who the scriptures simply identify as that, a sinner. In this passage, there is no clear reference as to the nature of her sin, but as understood in the context of this account, biblical scholars routinely agree this woman was an immoral person, a loose woman, probably a prostitute. However, it is important for us to note that in the New Testament, the word which is usually translated sinner is taken from a Greek verb, hamartano, which literally means to miss the mark, like an arrow shot at a target and veers off the mark. But a verb which also becomes the basis of another Greek verb, meraino, meaning to extinguish, or to pass away, or to fade away. In this, we see that a sinner, from the biblical point of view, is someone who misses the mark morally or in any other way, And as a result, someone who is fading away, passing away. Someone whose life is becoming extinguished, unimportant, insignificant. This must have been how Jesus understood a sinner. Because when we examine the interaction between Jesus and the sinner, we discover that first Jesus comforted the woman. Isn't that refreshing? Notice in this account what he did not do. He did not ignore the woman. I just hope she goes away. He did not interrogate her. Who are you? What do you want? Why are you doing this? Neither did he insist of her. You shouldn't be here. Uh, You should go now. It's not a good time. Uh, We could chat later. Instead, he acknowledged her presence. Verse 47, Simon, do you see this woman? Second, he assessed her condition that she was a sinner. Third, he approved her behavior. She has loved much. Jesus simply accepted her before declaring to her in verses 48 and 50, Woman, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, to our knowledge, this woman was not, had not sinned against Jesus directly, except perhaps to embarrass him at that dinner party. So it would be safe to say that the forgiveness that Jesus pronounced upon her applied to the sins of her entire life and became, in effect, a proclamation of good news, of the best news she could ever hear in particular, and good news which could ever be heard by humankind in general. That the living God is in the business of forgiving people. 
that if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we have this important void, this need in our lives, as a woman did, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins, to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness, to make right all relationships, including our relationship with our Creator. That's all from 1 John chapter 1. The first and essentially only words that Jesus spoke to the woman pertained to forgiveness. But notice carefully the precise words that he used in Luke chapter 7, verse 48, saying to her, your sins have been forgiven. Not your sins will be forgiven, nor your sins are forgiven, but your sins have been forgiven. In essence, saying the problem has already been settled. Provision has been made. God has taken the initiative. Forgiveness is available for the taking. But the decision is yours to receive it. Your recognition, your confession of your need, of your sin is the key. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. For that woman, as for all of us, Jesus' proclamation of forgiveness was a declaration of freedom. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words which the English language translates forgiveness. One is charizomai, which refers to offering a gift of grace. The other is aphiomai, which is found in Luke chapter 7, right in this account, which literally means to untie a knot and which refers to letting go, releasing, pardoning, setting free. The dynamic of relationship between Jesus and the woman was characterized by the kind of grace whereby he accepted her so as to open up that narrow, confining, extinguishing box of that woman's life, that entrapped prostitute, and set her free. Jesus' unfaltering agenda at that dinner party in Bethany centuries ago was to set this woman, this polluted sinner, to set her free. And he is doing that in dinner parties and assembly lines and back alleys and school hallways and children's bedrooms to this day. And he just might want to be doing that for you in these days. When we examine the interaction between Jesus and the sinner, we discover that first, Jesus comforted the woman. But second, Jesus confronted the Pharisee. Why? Because this Pharisee had been rude to Jesus? Yes, he had. Because he was judgmental of the woman? Yes, he was. Because he was aligned with self-righteousness, with religiosity, with rigidity? Yes, All of these things were true. So essentially, Jesus confronted the Pharisee because the Pharisee was also a sinner. Not in the same way as the woman, you know, not with the same consequences as the woman, but with the same need as the woman, the need to be forgiven. 
And with the skill of a master teacher, Jesus both defended the woman and disturbed the Pharisee as he shared a simple story and then posed a simple question saying in Luke chapter 7 verse 41 to the Pharisee, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Simon, which of them, therefore, will love him more? The Pharisee's answer was obvious and logical. I, I, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. With his own words, the Pharisee peered through a window of truth and saw a reflection of himself coming back. The assumption of the parable was clear. The size of the debt was immaterial, but both debtors needed forgiveness. The implication of the parable was inescapable. The Pharisee was like the woman needing forgiveness. But just to make the Pharisee sure that he caught it, Jesus levied the application himself. Chapter 7, verse 44, we read that turning to the woman... Jesus said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But you, he, you, Simon, who is forgiven little, mm, loves little. It's important to note that Jesus actually invested much more relational time and energy with the Pharisee than with the prostitute. As strange as it may seem, the Pharisee was much more difficult to set free than the prostitute, essentially because he didn't see his sin. He didn't see his own entrapment. The Pharisee looked clean, but he wasn't. The Pharisee thought he had his act together, but he didn't. The Pharisee believed that other people should take stock of their lives, but he doesn't really need to. So out of concern for the Pharisee, in an effort to break through the facade and get to the heart of the Pharisee's life, with his desire to put aside what was politically correct, to move beyond the shallow niceties of religious protocol, to go deeper, to actually build a kind of relationship of substance with that Pharisee, Jesus opted to risk his own reputation, his own safety, his own incredible opportunity for a comfortable, congenial dialogue with one of the movers and shakers of his day, not to mention risking the invitation to a great meal. So he did it so as to open up the narrow, confining, extinguishing box of this entrapped leader to reveal the sin of the Pharisee as well as his need for forgiveness so as to set the Pharisee, this pious sinner, free. This is really a story of two sinners, of two people in boxes, 
of two people confined by their own lifestyles and belief systems. It's a story of two people in the dark, unable to see themselves for who they really were. It's a story of two people needing a fresh start, needing a new opportunity, needing forgiveness. And these two biblical characters represent two broad categories of people in the world to this day who need forgiveness. Those who know they need it and those who don't know they need it. As we observe Jesus in action building relationships with these two sinners, it's no coincidence that we observe his love for them side by side, compelling him to treat them quite differently. With the one sinner, the woman, Jesus emphasized grace because the truth of her sin was very apparent, very accessible to her. But the grace of God which she needed to set her free was not that clear to her. With the other sinner, the Pharisee, Jesus emphasized truth because the grace of God was very apparent, very accessible to him, but the truth of his own sin was not apparent to him, which he needed in order to be set free. The goal was the same, forgiveness and freedom. The process was the same, people-centered, depending upon the need of the person. That's why it remains to this day as it was in Jesus' day that leading someone to a place where they can actually receive forgiveness, where they are actually set free, is a task of getting involved in someone's life so as to get to know them, so as to determine whether they need comforting or confronting. But always it means being in relationship with that someone, that relationship between Jesus and the sinners was characterized by freedom. And that's precisely what it meant to epitomize relationships to this day. Freedom through forgiveness. Can you imagine anything in life more important or more exciting than, than setting someone free? What can be better in this life than that? What can be better? For us to be bearers of good news, for us to get close to people enough to help them understand where they are really at and let them know that we love them, accept them as people regardless of their sin, their struggle, their cynicism, to win the trust of that other and to become the voice of God in their lives, to share with them all the love of God, to help them untangle the knots of their lives, for us to become agents of new life in Christ and to lead someone to experience the power of change in their lives. What can be better in life than doing that? How do we do it? Well, setting someone free insists, most importantly, that we are free. So this portion of Scripture begs to us, are you? Are you? Perhaps you may at times in your life have or still 
feel like the woman. Guilty, broken, dirty, defeated, extinguishing. Perhaps you readily identify with the Pharisee, angry, judgmental, fearful, religious. In either case, I'm here to declare to you today, from the authority of God's word, you can be free. Because you've already been forgiven. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there's no question about your motivation in coming to walk this planet with us. To provide the kind of grace and truth that actually sets this world free. This, this lost and broken world free by providing the necessary forgiveness, providing a way of acceptability that you made possible by your own death on the cross for people to find a relationship with you as you reach first and foremost. Lord, I pray that for anyone in this gathering today or, or being part of this time online who may still be trapped in an extinguishing box of sin, of brokenness, of unworthiness, you would give them the truth that will set them free. And for all of us who have that freedom in you, Lord, give us that Incentive, that imperative incentive, yet again, for as long as you give us breath on this planet, would you give us that desire, that love to reach to someone who is in need of your love and forgiveness, your truth and grace, in need of your forgiveness. This we pray, Lord Jesus, our Savior, in your precious and holy name. Amen.